So um, a question that I often receive, maybe it's because I'm a pastor, is this. Who's your favorite person in the Bible other than Jesus? Your favorite biblical figure in entire Bible. And I think for me, hands down, it has to be John the Baptist. And it's not because I'm into his fashion, which is basically a camel fur uh, and a leather belt. It's not because I'm into eating locusts uh, or wild honey. But I, I love the way that he's driven uh, and, and, and he's passionate and about God's mission. That he knows exactly what he's called to do. And that is to point people to Jesus Christ. Now there's a scene in John 10 where Jesus actually visits the place where John was giving baptisms before. And John at that point is not there. But Jesus is able to talk to the people at that location. And what they say is this. We know John the Baptist and now we know that everything that he said about the Christ, Jesus, you know, it was true. John did not do a lot of miracles or he did not perform many signs, nothing too crazy. But at the same time, one thing that he did do is that everything that he spoke of Jesus was absolutely true. And that's what I hope to do in my Christian life. I hope that people know me more uh, than my great works, more than uh, all that I accomplish, that people will simply be able to understand that and, and confidently say that everything that James said about Jesus, now that I see it, it's absolutely true. That's my ultimate hope. But at the same time, in today's passage, we see that this great man of faith is facing some disappointment. Uh, this Baptist is facing some struggles. Uh, so we, we see this in, in verse 18. When soon, soon uh, the disciples sent a report to John and all the things that Jesus was doing. So John is now aware of what's going on outside. Keep in mind, at this point, John is in prison. We read from Luke chapter 3, verse 20, that John was thrown into prison because he spoke up against Herod the Tetrarch. And so um, that's, that was a situation that was going on. We also read in Matthew 11, a parallel passage from this account, that John, in fact, is in prison. And so he sends two of his disciples to Jesus. To ask a very specific question, and that question is found in verse 19. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, this is John speaking. And, and it, it surprises us because, you know, we thought that John was sold on Jesus. We thought John knew exactly who Jesus was. When people asked John, who are you? He specifically said, I am not the Christ. Then people ask, are you Elijah? And he said, no. Are you, are you a prophet? He said, no. I'm, I'm the one who is speaking in the wilderness. I'm the one who's preparing the way of the Messiah, the Lord. And so John knew exactly who he was. Uh, John was devoted to Jesus. He was the one who baptized Jesus. His entire life was devoted to pointing people to Jesus, to repentance. And yet, we see in today's passage that he, he's questioning Jesus. This is not just a simple question. This is a question of doubt. This is a question of discouragement. Like this is, this is John the Baptist, the great man of faith, asking Jesus, Jesus, are you the real deal? It's as if you, you were married to this person and you were married for a couple of years and, and at one point it suddenly hits you, is this person really the right one? Or should I look for another? Right? That sounds really, really bad. Uh, and it seems like John has been faithful to the Lord. At the same time, there comes a moment in his life where 
all of a sudden, everything seems, um, seems like, you know, it, it, couldn't, it, it, it might not be true. Everything is up in the air. Everything all of a sudden seems very, very shaky. And so what is causing John's disappointment and discouragement at this moment? I think I mentioned before, number one, is a difficult situation. That John, he's been in prison most likely for about a year alone. Uh, he's isolated from um, a lot of people. It's not the worst condition, but at the same time, right, he has limited freedom. And he has a lot of time to think. And we know that when you have a lot of time to think to yourself, uh, a lot of times uh, uh, it's not positive thinking. Uh, John is probably wondering, what's happening to my life? I'm thrown into prison because all I did was say what is true, uh, say, say what was true to God's word. And at the same time, he's confused about his situation kind of reminds you of 1 Kings 19 after Elijah brings fire down from heaven going against 450 prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. In the very next chapter, it still says that still Ahab and Jezebel was after Elijah. And so Elijah literally wants to die. He says, I want to quit. I want to give up. Regardless of all that happened at Mount Carmel, I am so drained. I am so disappointed. I am so tired that I simply want to give up God. Like, Let's end this. That's what he says. And God restores Elijah in such a tender way, but it, it seems like John is, is hitting that, that wall right now in his Christian life. Up to this point, he, he seems so faithful, but all of a sudden he's hitting a wall because of the difficult situation that he's, he's in. But at the same time, I think there's another reason why he's so disappointed. It's because unmet expectations that he had very high hopes and high expectations for Jesus. He was very confident in Jesus and his work. The fact that Jesus was going to come and restore the nation of Israel, the fact that Jesus was going to come and make all the things that are wrong right, he believed in the judgment of God, not just that God will punish all people, but he would execute proper judgment upon those who are wicked, restore all things so that the world would be a better place. That's what he was hoping for. He was hoping that a Messiah would show up and, and overthrow Rome, the, the very country that was oppressing his people. And so he had all these expectations. And when those expectations were not met, we see that he goes into this phase of discouragement. And when he stays in this phase of discouragement, he goes into this phase of, of doubt, questioning Jesus, questioning what is really going on. What he sees is that, that there's a distance between God's plan and his personal life. And can we relate to that when we see that something is absolutely true in God's word? but it seems like it's very distant from our everyday life. We think that we're being faithful to God's design for marriage, but marriage doesn't seem that ideal or great. We, we try to be a faithful witness at our workplace uh, and try to live out our faith. At the same time, we are met with persecution, a boss who does not appreciate all that we do. Like You have situations where, where the difficulties of life, the tragedies of lives, it makes you wonder, it makes you question whether God is even real, if he is powerful, if he is even good. Is he great enough to take care of our issues? So we see that John, he is a disappointed, discouraged, um, doubting man at this point. So he asks this question, and the second movement in today's passage is this. Jesus does not condemn John, but he's willing to help John to deal with his doubt. 
He's willing to help John work through his questions and find answers. It says in verse 21, In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preaching to them. And so instead of condemning John and his doubt, what we see is Jesus is willing to help John overcome his doubt by pointing John to Scripture, to pointing John to God's Word. We know this because Jesus, he's not making this up. He's actually quoting Isaiah 35.5, and he's quoting Isaiah 61.1, which is important because John, he is well aware of the content and the context of the book of Isaiah. He himself quoted the book of Isaiah multiple times. When people would ask him, who are you? He would quote from Isaiah 43, uh, I am the voice of one crying out of the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And so he was someone who was willing to quote the book of Isaiah to define his mission in life. And yet, one thing that he forgot was what would happen when the Messiah comes in Isaiah 35 and 61, it talks about this beautiful reality. When God's kingdom comes, when the Messiah comes, that there's healing that takes place among people. Brokenness is no longer there. That there's, there's, um, there's a restoration in this land that is going to take place. And so by quoting these scripture, what, what Jesus is doing for John is he's reminding John, hey, remember, remember what the prophet Isaiah said. I am the one. Like all these things are happening the blind, they're, they're receiving sight. Did you know that in the Old Testament that hardly you would find anyone who goes blind and then they receive sight? And then when Jesus all of a sudden appears, the blind are receiving sight. That's a promise for the Messiah. But it's not only that, but these two particular passages that John, Jesus selects, it's also a passage about God's judgment because it talks about God's plan to restore all things, but his plan to make all things right. To his plan to judge all people. Because right before that verse that Jesus quotes in Isaiah 35, it says in Isaiah 35, 4, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. Same is true with the verse that he quotes in Isaiah 61. It says in Isaiah 61, 2, To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And so by quoting these two pieces of scripture, uh, but intentionally leaving those details out, what Jesus is doing um, uh, at this moment is this. He's explaining to John, I know what is said about the messianic age, about the kingdom coming, about what the Messiah is supposed to do. I want to remind you that there are certain things that are happening right now that the broken are being healed. At the same time, you know, there are certain things that will wait until, un until the future, that there are certain things like the vengeance of the Lord, the judgment of the Lord, that's coming so don't be disappointed. Don't, don't, don't worry too much about all that's going to happen. Everything is going according to God's plan. And so be patient, John. That's what he's saying. And so it says in verse 23, summarizing this argument, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me, who's not offended, who doesn't stumble upon my words, who doesn't trip on my words. Uh, that's what the word offend means in, in, in the Greek. And Jesus is basically saying this, John, I know you're discouraged. I know you're in prison. It feels like your life is a waste at this point because nothing is happening in your life. But I want to remind you that your life is not a waste. Don't be offended by all that you see, but rather believe. 
And remember, you are blessed. So in the midst of disappointment and discouragement and doubt, Jesus restores John's understanding of God's plan and the plan of the Messiah. Now, George Whitfield, a very famous evangelist and preacher in the 18th century, he was known for the Great, great Awakening, uh, one of the most well-respected Christians in all of history. Um, we're told that he married late, and he had one son. And as he was traveling to do the work of God, uh, one day he heard that his son was ill. And, and that was devastating because this, this was his only son. So he got on his knees, he prayed, he, he prayed for healing. He prayed that God will heal his son and renew his son. And at one point, it felt like God was giving him confirmation, that God was giving him assurance that your son is going to live, that your son is going to be better. But then the next thing that happened was the boy died. Like, George Whitfield was so, so confident in God's power and his work that he was even announcing to people that my son is going to live. And yet, what happened was that the boy died. And, he, and, and George, he went into the six-month period where he was struggling with deep depression. A man of faith who led the Great Awakening goes into this moment of deep depression. Why? It's because what George knew about God from his word and what was seen in his reality did not match. He didn't have a way to explain all that happened uh, to his son. And, and so he was struggling to make sense of, of, of God's word in light of his reality. And that, that often happens in our lives, that we see all the th beautiful things in God's word, and yet we struggle to see how that actually applies in our lives. But one thing I want to encourage you is this. Uh, in those moments when there seems to be this distance between God's word and your life, what needs to happen is not you questioning God's word, but you expanding your understanding in God's word, seeing things in a new way, expand your understanding of who God is, and let that bring life to your reality. Help that under, let that help you understand your reality. When we are struggling with doubt, when we have questions about God and about Jesus, that's the moment that we have to go deeper into God's word, not go astray, but go deeper into God's word because in his word, there is a clear solution. Now, so many people struggle with suffering, with death, with injustice, uh, all the brokenness that we see in this world. People struggle with sorrow, tragedy, depression, anxiety, loneliness, you, you name it, on and on and again, people being backstabbed by other people, disappointment in careers, all these different things happen in our lives. And when we, when we see all that, what we tend to do is we tend to blame God. God, how can you let this happen? But the question is, do you actually know what God says about suffering? Do you actually know what God says about injustice? Do you know what is spoken in the word about sorrow and tragedy, about loneliness, anxiety, depression? Well, you might say, well, I kind of have an idea because I heard bits and pieces from different sermons and I kind of been a Christian for quite a bit so that I can form to some degree what God would, would say at this moment. But the truth is, a lot of us, we can't even go to a single passage that would actually address that issue. Like we have formed an image of God, not the true God, and we get disappointed by God. And what needs to happen in those moments is our understanding of God needs to be reformed and refined through his word. In the midst of all this, in the midst of his suffering, John the Baptist, he thought that Jesus was not the Messiah because he had a very narrow understanding of the Messiah. 
He believed that the judgment and the restoration had to take place at the same time. And, and, and Jesus brings John back to that very scripture and he says, no, like all that is going to happen, but the timing is going to be off. Like I'm going to preach the good news of the gospel right now, but one day I'm going to return and judge the living and the dead. So don't worry about that, John. And so as John, his understanding of God's word is being expanded, his faith is being renewed, and we know that from that moment on, John never questioned that he ended up dying for his faith, that his head was beheaded, and still, you know, we, we know that he lived a faithful life, obedient to the Lord. And so we see John struggling with doubt. At the same time, we see Jesus helping John in the midst of his doubt and his questioning. And the third thing that we see in today's passage is this, not only does Jesus helped John in the midst of his doubt, but John, Jesus defends John and affirms his ministry. Jesus defends John and affirms his ministry. That's super important. Look at verse 24. It says this, When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. So apparently, there was a large crowd that was surrounding Jesus. People heard this conversation between Jesus and the two disciples. And everyone knows John. It's, it's as if you are at this big gathering, and all of a sudden, you hear someone talking about Pastor James. And, and, and the conversation, and you're like, oh, Pastor James, I know Pastor James. And what you hear is, man, Pastor James is depressed these days. Like, he's struggling with his face these days. He doesn't even want to preach. He doesn't want to do ministry. Like, man, he's having a rough time. And, and at that moment, what would you think about me? Like, you would probably say, oh, man, he's a different guy. Like, I, I thought he, he was an okay dude, but no, like, you know, he struggles. He's, I don't know if I can trust his preaching. I don't know if, if I can trust all the words that he said to me. And, and so people, you can imagine as they have been uh, hearing all these conversations about John the Baptist, and they know John the Baptist pretty well, you can imagine them talking among themselves about John. And so Jesus catches that, and he says in verse 24, he speaks to the crowd. He's speaking to those who are questioning uh, God, John and his ministry. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? And that's, by the way, a rhetorical question. No, you didn't, you didn't go out to the wilderness. John, he was in the middle of the wilderness, the middle of nowhere. And he was baptizing people. And the reason why people traveled all the way to the river of Jordan was not so that they can see reeds shaking in the wind. It says in verse 25, did you go out all the way to see a man dressed in nice soft clothes? No. Like if you wanted to do that, you would go to the king's court because that's where the splendid clothing and uh, the, the luxury of life is, is found. And then you go to verse 26. If that's not what you looked for when you went to the wilderness, then what were you looking for? A prophet? Yes. You were looking for John the prophet. You were looking for John the Baptist. You were looking for a man who was not shaking in his faith, but a man who was so steady in God's word. You were looking for his fiery preaching, for his message of repentance. And so he's reminding people that John, although he's struggling at this moment, that doesn't mean that his, his ministry is invalid. That actually Jesus is approving John's ministry. He's saying that, man, John had, had, has done a great job up to this point. And he quotes from Malachi 3.1 in verse 27. He says, he says this, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And this is pointing to the forerunner, the one who would come before the Messiah. And Jesus is quoting from Malachi 3, reminding us that John's role was quite great. In fact, Jesus says in verse 26, I tell you, 
John is more than a prophet. He's not just someone who speaks of God's word, but he's someone who is greater than all those prophets. He's more than a prophet. He's the prophet who is going to point out the Messiah. And it says in verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Now that's a, that's a statement that should blow your mind. Think about all the people who lived before John. You have Abraham. You have Moses. King David. You have Alexander the Great. Solomon, who had all the wisdom and the wealth in the world, and yet Jesus comes to a place where he says that there's many, many people who are born of a woman, but none is greater than John. Like Jesus is, is, is lifting John up. He's saying that John is, is a great dude. But he takes a step further and he says this, as great as John is, in verse 28, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And this is when things get really personal. Because if you are a follower of Jesus and you belong to God's kingdom, this morning what Jesus is telling you is this, that you're greater than David. That you're actually greater than Moses. That you're greater than all of those men and women that walked in faith. You're greater than Joshua. You're greater than Elijah. You're greater than uh, Jeremiah. You're greater than all those men and women of faith. You're even greater than John the Baptist, who was greater than everyone who came before. And the question is why? How can the least of God's kingdom actually be greater than all these people? I think we have to kind of go back a little bit to understand this. I think the reason why Jesus is, is affirming John and saying that John is greater than everyone who came before him is not because you know, he was super smart, super, super wealthy, and, and all these things. I think the reason why he's doing that is because of the mission that he had. There's one mission that was given to John the Baptist, and that mission was to point people to Jesus. He was the one who was selected to point out the Messiah, to say that that is the Lamb of God who takes the sins of the world, that he's the one who came to save his people. That was his one mission. And because of that mission, Jesus says that John is great. The reason why John is great is because he was the one who introduced me. Yes, Moses, David, Abraham, indirectly, in the shadow, they would point to me, they would refer me in a very vague way. But John was the guy in the midst of a crowd, he was able to point out the Messiah, that he was the one who said, this is it. This is the one. And that's why he is great. Now, um, Pastor Joe um, prayed for me earlier. He said, you know, he was praying for, uh, for my preaching. And, um, and in a way, he's introducing that today, like I'm preaching, right? Would it be weird if I come up here, uh, if someone introduced me, and, and, and Pastor Joe, he introduced me, and I, I say, you know, I think Pastor Joe is a great man. He's a great man. Like, he's actually greater than everyone who came before him because he introduced me. He pointed you guys to me. Like, that would be ridiculous, right? Like, you would think I'm crazy. But that's happening right now in today's passage. Jesus is saying, John, he's just this dude who dresses weird, like, who has, who's eating locusts and, and honey. Like, and the reason why you went to see him is not to look at his mukbang and, and see what, how weird he is, but you went to see him because you believe that he was a prophet. He's more than a prophet. In fact, he's greater than all the people who came before him. The only reason why he is so great is because he's able to point out that I am the Messiah. And the reason why we, followers of Christ, are able to be greater than John is because we know more than John. 
Like John pointed out the Messiah not experiencing the cross. John pointed out the Messiah not experiencing the resurrection. He didn't witness all that happened in the early church. We have a clear record of all that Christ has done throughout history. We have a collection of his words. We know more precisely all that Christ has done, all the fulfillments in the prophecies. In other words, we have more knowledge than John, but the interesting part is that we actually have the same job as John. Like, What is the ultimate calling for the Christian? It is to be a witness for Jesus Christ. It is to point people to Jesus. It is to make disciples so that people would come and understand and know Jesus. And so what Jesus is telling us this morning is if you are a follower of Jesus, that's how highly I think of you. Not because you individually are great, because your role is great. That's how great I am. The the very fact that you introduce me, the very fact that you point to me uh, when it comes to other people, that makes you great. It's not about how much money you have or how high you go in your, in your career. But Jesus says the greatest thing that you can ever do in your life is actually point people to Jesus. I'm it. I'm the one. And so we see that John not only is being, being corrected and renewed by Jesus, but he's being defended by Jesus in the same way. I think God is encouraging us this morning. As, as much as he's willing to help us in the midst of our doubts and, and our questioning, uh, he's also inviting us to see how much he values you as you are faithfully living out the gospel, as you are trying to point people to Jesus. Although the world might not understand what's going on, although the world might question and actually despise all that you do, Jesus says, I think highly of what you do. It says in verse 29 and 30, the tax collectors, the people who are, who are considered sinners, they declare God just. And they got baptized. Uh, But in verse 30, it says, The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves. Notice that the Bible says God had a purpose for the Pharisees and the lawyers. And yet, these people rejected that purpose. In the same way, I think a lot of people in this world, although they have a clear purpose for their life, that God created us, every, every single one of us, in a wonderful way, in a, in, a, in a fantastic way, so that we would be him, his image, so we would reflect his glory, so that we would be created in his likeness, so that we can know him intentionally and intimately. And yet, what we do is we, we despise our purpose, and we try to go our own way. And what the Bible says is there are people who are going to be like that. And why do they despise God's purpose? It's not out of rationale. It's not because that's the reasonable thing to do. Notice in verse 31 and 32, it's talking about this illustration at a marketplace. When people were working at the marketplace, you had, place, you had children running around, and sometimes they would do skits, and they would play different roles. They would come up with different situations to reenact. And what they would do is, uh, is, is create a scene. And so what we see in verse 32 is you have children at the marketplace, and they're saying to one another, there's a group of people who want to play a wedding. Like, you're going to be the husband, you're going to be uh, the, the, the bride, and, uh, and we're going to have a great time. And so this picture of the wedding, and so people are playing the flute, and then there's a group of people who are saying, boring. Like, we don't want to take part in that. That's, that's stupid, right? They're not interested in playing the wedding. And so these, these kids who are wanting to do the wedding, they're like, okay, that's fine. If, if you're not interested in dancing and singing, then we can do a funeral, Right? At least that didn't cry a whole lot. Like, we can pretend that someone died and, and like, we can share in the sadness. And so we sang uh, a dirge, and, and it says that still these people did not weep. They didn't respond. 
And what is Jesus trying to say? He's saying that the real problem that, that exists in these people's heart is not a lack of understanding. It's unbelief. And what is unbelief? Unbelief is no matter what reason you give, I am determined not to believe in God. Like it says in verse 40, John the Baptist, he came in a way uh, where no bread, um, no drinking, no wine, and, and he shared very clearly of the word of God and people thought he was a demon. And maybe, okay, John the Baptist was too uptight. Like he was too strict. He was too holy for people. And so Jesus comes and he's eating, he's drinking, he's ha- having a party, he's, he's sitting down with people in a social way. And yet people say, look at him. He's a gluten. He's a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In other words, if people don't want to believe in God, they're going to find every reason not to believe in God. They're going to try, with, try to come up with all sorts of reasons. And so um, Alistair McGrath, he's an he's a Anglican uh, theologian, it says this, unbelief is the decision to live your life as if there is no God. It is a deliberate decision to re- reject Jesus Christ and all that he stands for. But doubt, on the other hand, is something quite different. Doubt arises within the context of faith. It is a wistful longing to be sure of the thing in which we trust. In other words, there's a clear difference between unbelief and doubt. Unbelief is you bluntly saying that I don't want God no matter what, period. I don't even want to have a conversation about it. Doubt is actually this, this, this thing that is created because you want to believe. You really want to believe in God. You want to understand who he is. And yet there are certain situations in your life that your limited understanding is causing you to question different things. And in those moments, what you have is a savior who's willing to talk to you. He's willing to point you to different scriptures. He's willing to restore you in a way from the inside out, refine your understanding so that you can have a broader perspective when it comes to God's kingdom and his work. And that's comforting. And it says in verse 35, Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. The world would say believing in a religion, trusting in a God who you can't see is is foolish. It is a waste of time. What the Bible says is this, three things. Number one, it says that those who are not offended by Jesus are blessed. It says that those who witness for Jesus are great. And those who, who live in such a way are justified in their wisdom. They are wise. The three things that people look for in this life, they want to be wise. They want to be uh, happy, in other words, blessed. And they deeply desire to be great. We do all sorts of things to create a career, to create a life that is defined as happy and great and wise. And yet the Bible says there's one thing that you can do in your life that's going to solve all those problems. It is believing in Jesus Christ. Trust in him. Your identity as a Christian, your significance as a follower of Jesus Christ, is bound to, to the very fact that you were called to be a witness for Jesus Christ. It's not how, how much you get paid on a weekly basis, but it's what you do for God's kingdom. If you are willing to make that sacrifice, that decision to follow Jesus and be a witness for his glory, Jesus is saying that you will not be disappointed, that I see you as great, because you're the one who's pointing people to the great one, which is me. And so, Let's live a life that, that is great. Let's live a life that's blessed. Live a life that is not foolish but wise. Let's follow Jesus with all that we have. Amen? Let's pray.